the last two falls, we have spent time in Acts. So two falls ago, we did the beginning part of Acts, and really that was about the church becoming established once Jesus went to the cross and rose into heaven. Then what? Then what? And the church kind of came together and started in Jerusalem. First sort of eight chapters are all about the church in Jerusalem uh, and how it kind of came out of nothing and started and what that looked like because no one knew how to do church. So it was a good conversation for us to have. What does church look like and are we doing it the way that God intended for us to do it? And then last fall we did uh, a section of scripture from right after that first section through most of the beginning part of Paul's missionary journeys where the church extended itself uh, out just a little bit further north and kind of set up a home base and then from there went out into all the sort of surrounding areas so Asia Minor which would be like modern day Turkey and then out into like even as far west and today we're going to get as far west as we're going to be in Greece so like the church is moving westward through the Mediterranean area and starting to put churches in these key towns Um, and so we spent a lot of time last year uh, you know, in the Galatia region, essentially, was what Paul was kind of planting all the churches in that area uh, through the first section of his missionary time. Then he went back to Jerusalem and went back out. And we ended last year with him in um, Athens. And so Athens, so today we're going to be in Corinth. And Athens and Corinth are two very, very different cities during that time frame of Paul's ministry. Okay, Athens is a like like... A lot more like uh, Cambridge or Harvard. It's got a feel of like a lot of really incredibly studied, very smart people. They sit around all day and they debate about things that are over most people's heads in that day. And they invite people in who can give them any new perspective. And they're open to like a wide variety of possibilities. They always want to hear somebody else's uh, ideas and they kind of want to, you know, talk them through and chew them up and kind of. But they don't really accomplish very much. And so Paul finds himself in Athens by himself. He leaves his companions. Uh, They're kind of in the Berea area, which is like not very far, but Paul basically goes to Athens on his own. He finds himself talking to some of these philosophers, and he presents Jesus to them. And they don't really exactly understand it. And he uses things that they would understand, right? He finds this statue to an unknown God, and he tells them about the God they don't know, right? And then he connects their philosophers, some of the things that they understand, to the idea of who Jesus is and the fact that he's a God that doesn't exist in a statue. He can't be made by human hands. He's a God that can be, can be worshipped anywhere. There isn't a temple where this God resides. He is all omnipresent. He's all over the place. And so it kind of blows their mind. And you know, he goes right from Athens, this place of learning, this place of kind of a lot of like philosophy, to Corinth. Corinth is not that. Uh, Corinth is a city that is basically, it's like a land bridge uh, in Greece that connects, let's see if I can get my, uh, my geography correctly. It connects sort of the Mediterranean uh, to the, well, that's the Aegean Sea, this is what it is, to the Mediterranean north of Greece. And if you were to kind of try to go that way, like if you were going to go to, for instance, Italy, from eastern side of Greece, you'd have to go all the way around. And if you go through Corinth, you would pull into this gulf and you would basically be able to park your boat, get off the boat. They would actually pick your boat up and roll it across this land uh, mass and drop it in the water on the other side. So then you could kind of take off that entire route and cut through. 
Uh, today, there's a canal there, which makes sense, but the canal would have needed to be cut out of like solid rocks. So they just didn't have the, the ability to be able to cut that canal then. But if you look it up today, the Corinth Canal is, you can look at pictures, there's just sheer rock on both sides, and it cuts through from the Aegean Sea to the Gulf of Corinth, which, which spills into the Mediterranean north of Greece. Um, all that to say, Corinth was an incredibly important city because it was the sort of a crossroads between north and south when it came to trade, when it came to culture, when it came to politics. It was sort of this city that was both very rich and cosmopolitan and sort of had this vibe like it was a New York City kind of place. But also, and I think this might come along with enough money, it was a very uh, perverse sexual place. Okay, and So the word, if you called somebody a Corinthian back in Paul's day, it would have been like calling them a pervert. Okay, So a Corinthian meant something to the rest of the world. And they were known for their sexual sin. This city was specifically known for its sexual sin. So when you pulled into the harbor uh, on the south side of, of Corinth, there basically was all the brothels right there, right on the water, greeting you first thing when you stepped foot into Corinth. It was the biggest piece of trade, the biggest you know, thing that was going on there. It's what people understood Corinth to be known for. And so this is where Paul takes the gospel. And I just want to stop and say, like, sometimes we're called into the hardest place to share the gospel. Like, we're not just supposed to go to the Bible Belt, right, and just talk to people who are, like, sort of okay with being Christians. It, it actually is a problem for a lot of churches to, to sort of get used to just collecting other Christians from other churches, sort of peeling them off one by one, and then just sort of growing by, you know, growing with only people who already know Jesus and have a relationship with him, and not reaching new people, not planting churches in hard places. In fact, as a church planter, when you know, uh, I talk a lot with church, plants, uh, church planters, and you know, I'm kind of in that scene of people and know a lot of church planters, a lot of times the conversation will go to, well, what's the demographics of the area? Right? And so churches often will get planted in places where they know they'll be successful already. Oh, do you know how much, how much that area is growing? Oh, do you know how many people, what's the median income of that area? Like, these are conversations that church planters have often. I, I want you to know, Mountsview, where we planted this church, had nothing going for it. Right? Like, this is the most amount of need in the entire area is right here, you know, in, in Mountsview. Like, we would be much more, uh, financially, we would have much more success if we were on the west side of the Mountsview School District as opposed to the east side. I think my... I think my directions are, are right there, right? I think there's like east, west, I don't know. You get what I'm saying. I remember when we put together our first mailing list, the guy who was doing the mailing said, uh, hey, I'm going to you know, create your mailing list, but he's like, I'm going to leave out this whole section right here. And he was pointing to the area where all the apartment buildings are, where mobile home communities are, where, and I, I said, no, we, that's exactly where we want to send our mail. That's exactly, those are the places we want those postcards to go. And he's like, well, if you do this, you're going to cut out a part of Shoreview. And I was like, it's okay. This is what we want. We can only afford this section. So we lost a little bit of Arden Hills, lost a little bit of Shoreview. Could have cut all that out and sent to a much richer area. I just want you to know, like, Paul doesn't avoid the hard place. He goes for it. He goes for the hard place. Now, 
Corinth does have money, but it is just, just this haven of sin, right? This haven of sexual sin. And it's a place where there's no Christians. So when he shows up, it's like showing up to the place where you're the only, only one. And, I, you know, it's hard for me to help you understand this concept because probably if you grew up in this area, you grew up around a lot of really good people who were like pseudo-religious, right? They were like Lutheran or Catholic or, you know, Baptist or whatever. They had something growing up and they, you know, confessed some sort of Christianity. Generally, you weren't seen as like a weirdo if you were religious but I grew up in, in Connecticut, and I can actually remember uh, when I was in our, our youth group, we, I drove two towns over to go to church, and I didn't pass another good church on the way to that one. Here, you come here, you pass like three or four good churches probably on the way here. Like, it's a different culture. And so I remember I was the only kid in my youth group from my high school, and we did this thing called See You at the Pole. Anyone ever done See You at the Pole? The real you know, Christians, old school Christians, or, yeah, <laughs> the rest of you are like, what are you talking about? Uh, early on in the school year, you'd get together on a specific morning with other Christians in your school, and you'd pray around this flagpole, around your flagpole at your school, out in the open, and it was like this, like, you know, let's measure how good of a Christian you are. If you go pray in front of your flagpole, then your friends will know you're a Christian kind of thing. And um, I've seen, you know, as a youth pastor, I would do this with my students, and we'd have, you know, 20, 30 kids out there, and somebody would bring a guitar, and it was like a really cool thing. And all the other Christian kids in the school got to know each other, even if they went to different churches. It was really good. Well, I showed up, you know, to my flagpole, and there was one other kid. It's me and one kid, right? I didn't, I didn't grow up in a place where Christianity was, like, no, the norm. It was, it was weird. We were weirdos. Everybody in the school was like, what were you doing today out at the flagpole holding hands you, yeah, it was just us, flagpole between us. I was like, hey, man, you want to pray now? Okay. And, like, good on that kid, too, right? Like, uh, you know, he was a, we, it was really good for us to know each other, and we really did pray a lot for our school, and it was really, it was nice to be able to have somebody else and not be the only one. But what I'm telling you is, like, that's Corinth. Paul is showing up into a place where there's no Christianity at all. No one knows Jesus. There's a, a synagogue, which you're going to see. There's some Jews, but there's no Christians. And this is a place that's overwhelming. You get off the boat, and sex is in your face. And it is a commodity. And people are items. And this is just how people spend their money in this place. And he's like walking into this, like it would be like the, the equivalent of New York and Las Vegas coming together, sort of. And now he's going to bring the gospel to this place. And that's what I want you to understand. Like, we have to go to hard places. We have to. There are countries in the world not even open to Jesus, and we have to find ways to bring the gospel to those places. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. So we're going to pick it up with Acts chapter 18. And what page is it on? There you go. If you're following along, pick it up. 953. It says, After this... So this is after Athens, after Paul makes the appeal at the Areopagus to all these philosophers. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now he is by himself. Okay? It says there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul wanted to see them, and because 
sorry, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So these guys got kicked out of Rome, and there was some sort of uprising that kind of got blamed on Christians. It's historically, it's, it's in the history books, you can read about it. But they had to leave Rome, and they had to come to Corinth. So God brings two believers, well, three believers, right? A married couple and Paul together to, like, create this new church in Corinth. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, and generally it's in that order, by the way. Um, we could talk about that another time. Uh, it's usually the wife first and the husband second and when they talk about these two, which is not the norm, and it has a meaning. Um, but when they come together and sort of have this godly marriage, they're sort of following the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit leads them. And you're going to see them throughout other parts of the New Testament where God uses them to start churches and he uses them to strengthen churches, and he uses them to sort of, actually at one point, they reteach a preacher the gospel and kind of say, hey, you know, you're great and everything, and people are really loving you, but you got something wrong. Let's fix that. Let me, let me sit down and go through this with you. They're big time as Paul continues to reach into this area, and they're tent makers. Now, Paul is not yet supported by any church, so he's making his living by making tents, and the word tent maker. It could translate to leather worker. Whatever he was doing, he was using his hands. He was creating something. He had a trade. So when he went into a new place, he just sort of started making stuff and working and finding enough funds to be able to care for himself. And he wasn't supported by uh, a church. And up until this point, he was basically bivocational. He was a pastor and he was a leather worker, tent maker, whatever. Right? And it was important to Paul to do that, I think, because there were a lot of people who were sort of grifting off the church. There were a lot of people who were like getting paid, but weren't necessarily doing the work or doing what God had called them to do. They were taking advantage of the church. And Paul was like, look, I'm just going to make my own money and I'm going to do this and I'm going to make sure that you understand I'm in this not so that I can enrich myself. I'm in this because this is what Jesus is leading me to do. Later on, he will be sponsored by the church. That's not a bad thing. Right? Thank goodness. Thank you for paying me. I appreciate that. Like, it's not a bad thing to pay the, the, your pastors, your, your staff team. That's good. But it's something that Paul was sort of cognizant of, and he wanted to be careful about. And so he was tent making, or leather work is what he was doing, essentially. And I think it's funny. I, I had one time somebody said to me, like, you know, you send all these people overseas as a Christian, and they're all tent makers. What are they all? Is everyone making tents all over the world? Like, is this sort of like Amish furniture that Christians just make, <laughs> make tents everywhere? And I was like, no, that's a term that we use for somebody who's bivocational. People still go all over the world, and they could teach English. They could be a doctor or nurse. They take a career with them to a place where the gospel isn't welcome, and then they find ways to then be a person who can create a gospel presence in the place that they are. Like, that's what a lot of missionaries do when they go overseas. Okay? So we still call that tent making. We don't mean they're out there making tents. Okay? That's, that's not what we mean. We mean they're bivocational. And so Paul finds himself. But I want to set you up to understand Paul's mentality when he goes into Corinth because I think we have this idea about him that he stands um, over the city like at a peak and with a just you know, sort of like this with a cape flowing behind him and yells, to live is Christ, to die is gain before he goes into any place. We have this idea that he's got this like just unbelievable amount of like, you know, that he, he's not afraid of anything and he doesn't care if he dies and he's going to martyr me if you want. Well, up to this point, Paul hasn't really been 
like super successful. Everywhere he's gone, they've thrown him out. They've tried to stone him. They've tried to kill him. They've run him out of town. Six times before this, every place he's gone to start a ministry, they've tossed him out. And he, he comes to Corinth, and he's, he's nervous. He's, he's afraid. We know this. We know this. Because here's what Paul says. Uh, in, you don't have to switch over to this. I'll just read it to you. It's 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 3. He says, and this is Paul talking to the church that begins at Corinth later on when he writes them a letter. He's talking about what he felt when he first came into Corinth. He says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Paul is nervous. He's afraid. He doesn't know if he can be successful in this place. He knows he feels uncomfortable in Corinth. He understands that the amount of sin that is there is like an affront to him. It's like an offense to him. And he can't even find a way to feel comfortable in this place. He doesn't know where to start. There's nowhere there to lean on. There's no church there to go get you know, connected with. He's got to create it out of nothing. It's crazy, right, that Paul would feel fear. But that's where he's at. He's feeling fear. Like, I think when God calls us to do something big, it is an appropriate response to feel that fear and that tension. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that we're going to fail. It doesn't mean that we should get caught up in that fear and allow it to, you know, create a, a situation where we don't move forward with what God has called us to do. And if you're feeling a fear when you think about bringing up the gospel with somebody in your life, know you're not the first person to feel that way. If you look at somebody and you think, this person, there's no way, you know, in the back of your head, if you're being really honest, you look at them and you think, there's no way that they would ever accept Jesus. Like, that's a conversation that I think a lot of people have with themselves when they start thinking about sharing the gospel. And they lack a little bit of faith to understand that God does incredible things in people's lives and flips it completely 100% on its head often. And it's not up to us to exactly see the whole picture and it's not up to us to be bold and have all the strength in the world to be able to do what God's called us to. It's up to us to be obedient and to allow him to do the thing that seems impossible. So Paul comes to Corinth and he's like, I don't, I don't know. It's, this is an awful place and I feel uncomfortable and I don't know what to do. And I'm just going to go make some leather stuff and see what happens. This is where we are. So here's what Paul does. It says he meets up with Priscilla and Aquila. It says, because Claudius ordered the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker as they were. He stayed and worked with them. He obviously knew them because of his trade. Every Sabbath, and by the way, we don't actually know if they were believers before this. We assume or think that, but it could have been that Paul helped them follow Jesus. He just knew them because he was a tent maker and they were a tent maker. Um, so it says, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, so he's... Every Sunday or Saturday, just going to the synagogue and spending time with Jews and Greeks and trying to persuade people to understand who Jesus is and using the Old Testament to connect the pieces so people can find a way to believe in and have faith in Jesus. Uh, and then it says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And here come back up, Right? Silas and Timothy come from the place they were in. They were in Macedonia where Paul was not allowed to go. 
and they're doing ministry. And Paul's been pulled away and went to Athens, and I went to Corinth. And these guys come in, and all of a sudden, there's a little bit of community. How beautiful is that? Hey, Paul was afraid, and things were looking difficult, and here comes community. It's kind of amazing that God would provide that. That's like one of the, the, the pieces that makes this not so fearful, like makes Paul not so fearful. It also says that, they, that Paul now all of a sudden devotes himself completely to his ministry. It, we speculate here that, uh, that Timothy and Silas brought a, a, an offering from one of the churches that they were working with, and now Paul was able to go full-time into studying the Word and to preaching the Gospel and could leave tent-making behind from this moment on in his ministry. It's kind of a big moment for Paul where he goes all in on it. But now he's got some people. He's got Priscilla and Aquila. He's got uh, Silas and Timothy. Now he's not alone in this place. He's found the, the uh, synagogue, and now he's uh, sort of arguing with, sort of, I guess, defending Jesus and using the Old Testament to connect the dots. So when uh, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying that G, that the, to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and beca- became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is Paul for you. So he's, he's defending Jesus to the Jews, and he's trying to argue to everybody at the synagogue that Jesus is the way to go. And it says they, they come against him, and then they start to get abusive. And the word there translates that they were almost uh, starting to mock Jesus. Like they were starting to, you know, to do things that Paul was not going to be okay with, allowing them to say to him and in that situation. And so he shakes the dust off him, which is just this idea that we find with prophets in the Old Testament. This is what Jesus kind of told his disciples to do. He says, when you go into a town and you start to lay the groundwork, if people aren't willing to listen, if there's a uh, you know, a kind of a barrier between you and them, then shake off the dust as you leave that town. Make sure you don't take any of that filth with you when you walk away, right? That's kind of the idea. So Paul shakes his whole garment out, right? I was trying to figure out, like, what that looked like. You know, Paul's just, just shaking off his whole entire garment, right? It's like, I don't want any of this on me, right? You guys are getting to the point where you're mocking Jesus. Okay, fine. It's on you. This was also a practice that the Old Testament prophets did as well when they would go in and warn the people. And if the people were obstinate and wouldn't listen, they would say, fine, the blood is now on you. Right? When God does and fulfills the thing that I'm warning you about, it's on you. I came to tell you, if you don't want to listen, that's okay, it's on you. I'm not saying we should uh, cut bait with people all the time, but when you find a situation where someone's mocking Jesus and they're openly hostile and, you know, it might just be time to cut bait in that situation and give it some time and wait, find another way later, come back to it another time, just give it some time to breathe. It's okay to shake off the dust and move on to another place. But look what Paul does. I just think this is like, such, he's such an agitator, which is why I love him. Uh, when I was going through, um, I, I had to go to uh, basically a, a church planting, it was sort of like a approval process and had to go for a couple days uh, and they tested me in all kinds of ways and they you know asked me a lot of questions and tried to verify that God had called me to church planting Um, and I was sure that God was calling me to church planting so I was jumping through the hoops to 
to be able to get denomina denominationally approved and to get money from certain organizations that would help us plant our church. And, uh, but I was pretty convinced that God was calling me to, to do that. And I went to the first day, and I sat down across from this other pastor, and he said, hey, I just want you to know, like, if we decide to not approve you, right, if we decide there's a problem here, and you're not supposed to plant a church, or it wouldn't be healthy, or it's not a good situation, I want to know what you'll do. This is what this person said to me. Um, and I don't know what a lot of people, how they would answer. I, didn't, I wasn't sure how to answer. So my answer, which I'm not sure was the best one, I basically said, hey, I really appreciate what you guys are doing here, and you know, I'm really hoping that you guys will approve what I feel like God has called us to do. But if you don't, I'm going to do it anyways. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, I'll find the money somewhere else. I'll plant the church that God called me to plant. I don't care. He was like, uh, well, no, you need our, I was like, I do not need your approval. I was like, if God's going to do something, he's going to do it. And you're not going to get in the way of that. And I, I want your approval. Let me be perfectly honest. I'm coming because I want to be part of this denomination. But I don't care if you say no because I'm going to listen and be obedient to God. Paul, if you're a church planter in this situation, Paul has to have a little bit of that like, okay, it's almost like they said, hey, Paul, you're fired. And he was like, I quit. Right? Like, <laughs> he's just kind of like, whatever. Like, fine, it's on you. And look what he does, and this is just, I just respect and love this move so much. This is just such an agitation move. He says, um, when, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue, went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household, he goes, he goes, okay, I quit. And then he starts preaching next door. <laughs> he says, like, I don't need the synagogue, and I don't need you. And if you don't want to listen, that's okay. That's on your head. I'm going to go next door. And guess what? I'm going to start reaching all of the deviants in the city. Because God, he doesn't just want to reach religious people, guys. Like, he doesn't just want to reach people who are already pretty close to him. He's not looking for people who think they just need a little tweak in their relationship with Jesus. Like, he needs to reach people who know they are far from God. All of us are actually far from God, but some of us have played this game where we've convinced ourselves that we're so close to God that we've done most of the work to get ourselves there, and he can just tweak a little bit, and now we can find ourselves in heaven. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is you are far from Jesus no matter how good you are. You might be better than your neighbor. It doesn't matter. You're not as good as Jesus. You're definitely not perfect. I don't think anybody in here would say they're perfect. But these Jews are obstinate. They're saying, hey, we're good enough. And do you want to play that game of like, did I do enough good stuff to find my way into heaven? What happens? Hypothetically, if you miss, you cut somebody off on the way to church, and that was the one thing that kept you out of heaven. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Your deeds, your actions, the things that you do cannot earn God's approval. They do not justify you in the eyes of God. That's not how it works. How it works is when you, you find humility and you lay yourself down and you pick up the cross of Jesus Christ and you carry that to the gates of heaven and when God says to you, hey, why are you, why are you getting in? You say, it's only 
because of the grace of Jesus that I'm able to get in. There's nothing good about me outside of the grace of Jesus Christ. And when you see me, I want you to see this cross. Right? That's, that's the gospel in a nutshell. And so Paul says, fine, like, you know, you guys think you're great. I'm going next door, and I'm going to start to reach some of the people that are just the worst. The people that you look down on, that you think you're better than, I'm going to reach them. I'm going to reach into their lives, and I'm going to show them what grace looks like. And it's funny, because the first person that comes to Jesus is the least likely person to come to Jesus. Right? So it says that he goes next door, and he starts preaching at Titius Justice, I've thought about how to pronounce that. It's, a un, it's not a great name. Uh, he says, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. So the first person that comes to Jesus in this situation is the synagogue leader, the guy who has to basically be cut off from the Jews at this point and lose his job and give up the most to follow Jesus, and he's like, I'm in. I get it. I see it. And his household listens to the gospel, and they become believers, and people are getting baptized, and the church is taken off, and things are starting to really happen, and it's looking incredible, but that's certainly not the end of the story. Here's, here's God coming into this situation and knowing that Paul is, you know, he's, he, things are going good for him, but he started from a place of fear and tension and not sure where this is all going to go. And he's starting to worry, I'm sure, that, hey, I've been kicked out of the last six places, and now I'm probably going to get kicked out of Corinth. Like, that's got to be weighing on him. I should be careful and measure what I say, because I might get kicked out of here. Right? A preacher should never be thinking and measuring what they have to say because they're worried about what that's going to mean. They should be saying exactly what God has laid on their heart. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, and what does God come to Paul with? He says, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent, for I am with you. And he said, no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. And think about it, God is already owning people, both people that are already for him in all kinds of layers of the city, and people that haven't met him yet that will find their relationship with Jesus through this brand new church. So Paul stayed in Corinth, not for a short time, for a year and a half. That's the longest Paul spent in any of the the cities that he started churches in. And what did he do while he was there? He didn't make tents anymore. He was teaching them the word of God. He was developing disciples in that scenario. And it says, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to a place of judgment. And think about it. Paul's been promised. It's not going to work against you. God's with you. He's told you to be bold and not to stop speaking. You're going to be able to open your mouth and change this situation, right? And so they made a united attack on Paul and brought him to a place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourself. I will not be the judge of such things. So he drove them off. And then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no 
concern whatsoever. So what has happened? This mob has come against Paul and brought him to this local leader. And this guy's like, I, I don't care. You've got, you got a religious squabble here. I'm not, I'm I'm not going to enter into this. Good luck to you. Like that's, I think religious people get super excited about their stupid little squabbles. And they think that people outside of you know, Christianity care about the things that they're fired up about. And what they're doing is they're missing the entire point of what God is doing all around them. And in fact, sometimes they're even working against the gospel or against what God is doing because they're so tied up in their stupid religious arguments. I would much rather us find unity among churches and both put our backs into working for the gospel in this area. Like That's what I'm hoping we will do as a church and be the kind of Christians that do that kind of thing. But I love what happens here. Paul goes and it says, just as Paul was about to open his mouth, like what did God just tell Paul to do? He said, be bold, go on speaking, continue the message. Like, don't be afraid. I want you to continue to speak this message. And then the first chance he has to go and defend himself, God bails him out before he can say a word. Because God's credible. He is with us and he follows through on his promises. His promise was no one's going to touch you here. Now, this does not extend beyond Corinth and in this moment. Paul, Paul, on his way to Jerusalem after this, says, like, I don't know what's coming, but I know everywhere I go, I get beat up and thrown out of town. Like, that's what it, it means to be me, right? So he's not saying that God's always going to protect you 100% of the time. But when God does say he's going to protect you, that's a promise you can take to the bank. And so in this case, God bails him out before he can even say a word. Before his either fear or boldness take, take root in that moment, God does the work. You wonder, is Gallio one of God's people that he's using? He can use anybody, whether they are believers or not. Whether, whatever the situation is, God, in this case, bails Paul out with this guy. We don't know if he's a believer. We don't know anything about him. What is really interesting is this Sosthenes guy who became the next synagogue leader after uh, Crispus, who earlier became a believer, uh, he's actually mentioned in Corinth later. He takes a beating from the crowd and then accepts Jesus. It's kind of awesome. First guy to get beat up and then follow Jesus because of it. It's pretty great. Uh, I don't recommend it if that's, <laughs> that's what's going on. So let me just, let me, let me close with this because I believe God is really encouraging Paul in the midst of his fear and I think that's the part that could apply to you. Like, there's parts of your life you know you're called to do something, but you're afraid. Right? You're just not sure how this is going to work out. You've got a lot at risk. You're not really sure if you want to go there with this person again. You're not really sure if you want to reach out to this person. You're not really sure if you can reach out because of your workplace or your neighborhood or relationships that you have. Like, a lot of us carry fear in those areas. And God encourages Paul in his fear to do what he's called him to do. And here's how he encourages them. First, and this is, uh, these are your fill-ins at the bottom here if you're following along. He gives Paul godly friends. And it might not seem like a big deal, but when you have community, it makes all the difference. When you have people you can pray with and talk through stuff with and support each other in, it makes all the difference. If you're disconnected, you're like, oh, I'm, really, I'm not part of a small group. I don't serve anywhere. I'm not, I don't really have a lot of community. I sort of come to church on Sundays, and, but I really feel disconnected from the church. I really feel disconnected from God. 
why do you think that? I don't know, but it could potentially be because you don't have any community, and that's why it's such a high value for us as a church. We should be supporting each other in this, man. We should be talking about who we're praying for and want to share our faith with and the things that we are afraid of. Those should come out in conversation. We also need friends that will go there, not friends that just keep it all surface, not just a dude who's going to come and watch football or I don't know, what's the girl, somebody to go out to coffee with where you just talk about stupid stuff that doesn't matter and it's like nice to be with them and it's fine. But like actually talk about like what, what does your spiritual life look like? What is, how is the gospel affecting you? Like what are you doing to share your faith with other people? Like where are you with Jesus? Like that's a question a lot of us need to be asked. Hey, like I haven't seen you all summer. How are things, how are things with Jesus? could make the difference in someone's life. Also, if you're looking for those kinds of connections, be that kind of person. You want somebody who goes deep with you, go deep with them. You want somebody who's going to be there when you need them, be there for them. Like That's what it looks like. So God provides backup friends, godly friends to share the load. Priscilla and Aquila, Silas and Timothy, and then Crispus and all the people who receive Jesus and are baptized in that moment, right? The second idea is that God gives Paul strategic fruit. Uh, strategic fruit. He gives him some success. He shows him what it looks like to save someone that he thought never could be saved. Crispus is the first one to come to Jesus in that situation, and he's the least likely guy to do it. He's the one that loses the most by following Jesus. Don't give up on people. Don't look at them and think they're a lost cause. The one you think is a lost cause, God is closest to. God loves them most. He's like drawing that person into a relationship with him, pulling all the pieces together, and you're a part of it. You're just a piece of it, right? God's doing the work, and he's doing the miracle. Don't give up on people. Don't write them off. Don't look at them and think they're a lost cause. So what? They're cranky. You know, they're upset with you. They're whatever. Like, they probably have a lot of difficult things happening in their life, and God is probably drawing them in and using you to be part of that. Like, don't give up, because you'll see some fruit that'll blow your mind. And I don't know how you think. Like, I f- wasn't able to go back to my high school reunion, any of my high school reunions, because they're on the East Coast, and I really don't want to fly out there. And I really don't have a lot of friends from high school that I still keep in contact with, only a few. But those few, literally, mind is blown when they find out I'm a pastor. I'm like, they're like, hey, what are you up to? I haven't talked to you in like forever. Like, oh, I see pictures of your kids. It's super cool. What are you doing? I'm, I'm a pastor. Like, no, really. Come on, man. What are, you, what, are you, what are you up to? Like, I wasn't the likely person to be a pastor in high school. I was the kid screwing around and kind of making fun of everything and dating all the girls in the youth group and creating all kinds of drama. Like, I wasn't, it wasn't good. I think if you had asked my youth pastor growing up if he could like rank everybody in order of who was going to be in ministry, and I was at the bottom of the list. Thank God God didn't stop drawing me in. He didn't stop drawing you in. There was a time in your life where you were the least likely person to know Jesus. And there was a time in your life where you know somebody who was the least likely person to know Jesus. God will give us fruit, strategic fruit, People who are far from him can come close to him in the blink of an eye when they are undone by grace. Don't give up on them. I hope this church is the kind of place where we have stories like that. 
where we don't give up on people and then we see them follow Jesus and we see what God is doing in their lives and we praise God because of it. It's part of the reason why I love baptism so much. Third idea is a challenging word. Right? He gives Paul a challenging mission. He says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. He goes, hey, I know it didn't work out for you in the last six cities. There was actually one where they just about killed you. They stoned you. And you're just such a tough dude that you just still walked away from that, right? And miraculous things have happened to keep you alive to this point. But you know what? Like, I'm calling you to not stop speaking. It's a difficult word. And God calls us to difficult things. We should not take the path of least resistance every time. We should follow Jesus into difficult things. Fourth idea is that he gave him his presence to encourage him. He doesn't expect him to do it on his own. He doesn't expect him to be the one that saves the people. He's doing the work. He says, for I am with you. And last one, he says, uh, he gave him his protection. And again, this is not a health and wealth gospel. I'm not telling you that God's going to protect you every single time that you stand up for the gospel. In fact, Paul pretty much tells you you're going to get beat. You're going to get beat up every single chance you get. It's going to happen. But it's still what we're called to do. Right? But when God does promise it, he does fulfill it. And I think God encourages Paul to go for it in these moments. And he encourages us still to do those things too. Like we can't take our eye off the prize of knowing that there's a person who's going to know Jesus and have their life changed on this earth and then potentially be in heaven someday because of us being obedient to God in a tough moment. That is what we're called to do, and we cannot shy away from that. Right? We, we have to continue to have faith and boldness because God is with us, because he has gone before us, because he is doing the work, and he calls us to be obedient in those moments. Let me, let me finish our time here in prayer. I just want to encourage you. If you are sharing your faith with somebody who seems so far away from God, let me, I just want to pray for you. Jesus, would you bring the furthest people away in our lives close to you? Would you give us the strategic connections with people? Would you allow us to be bold and strong and stand up and do the things that you call us to do? God, would you allow our lives to make a difference in the lives of people around us? that we would both be encouraging to other people and allow ourselves to be encouraged by other people. God, would you continue to reach into this world, continue to grow your kingdom, and continue to bring people into this community. We pray for your kingdom, the big K kingdom that is all around us, God, that is being built by other believers, that you would allow us to be a blessing to them, allow us to work together so that we can see your name be made great in this place. Would you use us? In Jesus' name, amen.